Hi, this is Heike, and you may have decided at the beginning of the year that you're going to make some changes, some changes in your health. You perhaps decided you wanted to eat a little bit better, exercise a little bit more, or exercise a little differently, but overall take better care of yourself and hoping to lose some weight and lean out and lose some body fat. But somehow that doesn't seem to work out. Your scale, which is not the know-it-all, doesn't budge. You don't feel any leaner and your clothes are just as tight as they have been before. And you feel and you know you've done really well following all the steps that you decided to take towards your goal of health. You feel frustrated and you don't know where to go from here and what to do to reach the results that you have set for yourself. We're shedding some light on why you're not losing weight after menopause because of insulin resistance. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to let you know about the ultimate intermittent fasting system for beginners. This intermittent fasting system introduces you to intermittent fasting strategies that are sustainable and easy to follow fitness and nutrition programs perfect for the empty nester mom over 50. This self-paced program is designed specifically for a woman over 50 that is looking to add effective and easy to follow nutrition and Pilates strategies into their lifestyle. You can go at your own pace and have support along the way. If you want to feel stronger, healthier, be more vibrant, have more energy, and reduce digestive issues, then I recommend for you to check out the Ultimate Intermittent Fasting System for Beginners. I will leave a link in the show notes, and let's dive in to today's episode. I'm Heike Yates, a fitness and nutrition coach with 30 years of experience. I empower empty nester moms over 50 to take back their health and strength to feel vibrant in their second half of life. Right now, you're joined by thousands of empty nester moms around the world who stop dimming their light and instead ignite their spark. On this podcast, I do what I do best, taking complicated information about fitness, nutrition, and mindset strategies, and breaking it down into baby steps that are simple, actionable, and reliable, so you can implement them into your life. I regularly interview some of the most inspiring guests who share their honest stories on how they went from their worst to their best in life so that you know you're not alone in your struggles. Join me as we redefine what aging looks and feels like by taking action and saying, yes, I can. This is the Pursue Your Spark podcast. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Pursue Your Spark podcast. And today's guest is Dr. Morgan Nolte. She's a board-certified clinical specialist in geriatric physical therapy. She's the founder of Civilly an in-depth online course and coaching program that bridges the gap between busy physicians and patients who need to lose weight and get healthy. Morgan also helps adults reverse insulin resistance for long-term weight loss, loss and improved metabolic health. Her mission is to prevent diseases related to insulin resistance, such as diabetes, heart disease, dementia, and more. Morgan is also the host of the Reshape Your Health podcast. Welcome to the show, Morgan. Thank you, Heike. It's lovely to be here. I'm excited to just spread the insulin resistance message with your audience. So helpful. We've had so many questions on my end, and you as the expert are definitely something that you can answer for my audience. So glad that you're here. But I want to ask you before we dive in, what are you most passionate about? Oh my, I have a lot of passions, most passionate about what I'd say was my family. Um, we do, I'm married to a husband, uh, my husband is a grain farmer, so I'm in Nebraska, central America, you know, middle of America, 
I'm married to a grain farmer. We have two beautiful children. Dawson is about three and a half. Lee is about one and a half. And so that's my primary passion is my, uh, my family and my faith. And then after that is my work. Um, I'm really passionate about disease prevention because as a geriatric physical therapist, I've seen, um, you know, a lot of people say it's hell getting old and it is, I mean, it really can be heartbreaking and I took my broken heart and I started my business because I felt like there was a really big lack of preventative care for people who are in what I consider the gray zone of healthcare, which means they're not sick enough to go on a medication, or maybe they just started a medication for like blood sugar, cholesterol, blood pressure, et cetera. They're seeing that weight gain. They have a lot of risk factors for diabetes, dementia, heart disease, but their doctor just doesn't have the time to do something about it besides prescribe a medication. Mm -hmm. And we know because, you know, insulin resistance is really at the root cause of so many chronic conditions. If you're going to take one med, you better plan on taking about 10 because (laughs) you're going to get more than one condition down the road. So that's really my, my big passion from a work standpoint is disease prevention so that we can help adults just age healthfully and, you know, use their time and their money and their energy in retirement, living that retirement, you know, not just going to doctor appointments and having surgeries and dealing with one illness after the other. Uh, So I really like to just help people in that way in in a more proactive way. Yeah, that's awesome. Because there's so much out there. And like, I think you made a very, very good point saying that the doctors don't have time. It's that 15 minute in and out the door Uh, Yeah, you kind of have this, here's a drug, see you later, kind of. Mm -hmm. And there are some really good doctors. I really am an advocate of a good functional medicine doctor, Mm -hmm. but normal, um, you know, Western trained physicians, they really do follow that. um, What is it? Diagnose. So they diagnose a condition and then they prescribe a medication for that condition. Mm -hmm. So a really great example is one of my clients recently had blood work done. And actually she's not a client. It was an email and she wanted to know her blood sugars and her physician said, well, you don't need to worry about anything yet because your hemoglobin A1C um, isn't over seven. And for those who aren't familiar, diabetes is diagnosed with a hemoglobin A1C of 6.5 or greater. So this person's doctor said, you don't need to worry about it until you're already diabetic, but a lot can be done to prevent diabetes. They just don't have the time to do that education and behavioral counseling. And so that's really where my, my program Zibli comes into play in that coaching. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also find that sometimes physicians, even though they're mean, well-meaning, they don't have the background either. They don't know what else other than, oh yeah, exercise a little bit more and eat a little healthier, just the, the overall umbrella they really can't give you more than that because that's not how many of them are trained. And so I don't blame the doctors for where they are. And that's why I agree with you. The holistic approach to our health is so much needed, not only here in the U S now, since we're talking about insulin, what is insulin and what is it responsible for? Because everybody hears about the word insulin. Yeah. And when people hear it, they might think of diabetes, but it's actually, Um, a much more important hormone than just blood sugar regulation. There's an insulin receptor on all of our cells and it's primary primary role is blood sugar regulation. Um, Insulin is a hormone produced by your pancreas. It is a good thing. We need it to survive. So let's compare a type one diabetic and a type two diabetic. They shouldn't even be called the same thing (laughs) because a type one diabetic, they don't make their own insulin. And so their pancreas doesn't make it. And what are the symptoms of type one diabetes? Okay. High blood sugar, because they don't have insulin to allow that blood sugar to move from the bloodstream into their cells to be used for energy or stored for energy. And they're hungry all the time, even though they have high blood sugar, because energy can't get into the cells, the cells send signals to their brain. Hey, we're starving here. So they have a voracious appetite. They're very thirsty all the time and they can't gain weight 
So insulin is also known as your fat creation and storage hormone, because it does kind of serve as that key to unlock the cell, to let the nutrients in, to let the glucose in. So insulin is a good thing. We need it to survive. Now type two diabetes is completely different than type one diabetes. Often we hear, well, your body's not making enough insulin. And in, in a sense, that's true. What's more true is your body's insulin capacity is maxed out. So over the years, because insulin resistance really does take a long time to develop. Um, if you have prediabetes, if you have type two diabetes, you have insulin resistance. And we can talk a little bit more about some symptoms, but actually 88% of adults have insulin resistance. Only about 12% of our population, at least in America, is metabolically healthy. Okay. Interesting. Right. So with type two diabetes, um, what, what, what has happened is over the years, you have tapped into needing insulin very often and often in high amounts. So things that will stimulate a higher need for insulin would be um, a sedentary lifestyle. So not moving your body. The reason that is, is because there's this thing called a glute four transporter and it goes to your cell membrane it, to allow glucose to come into the cell. And that is stimulated either through movement, so muscle demand or insulin. So that's why exercise is really beneficial for our health. One of the reasons, right, is blood sugar control. It moves the GLUT4 transporter to the cell membrane so that you don't need as much insulin to control your blood sugar. So if you're not moving your body, you're going to be more likely to be insulin resistant. Um, if you're eating a diet that's high in refined and processed um, sugars and starches, so when, a when we're talking about macronutrients, um, sugars and starches will have that highest blood glucose response. And then blood insulin is needed to push that glucose into the cell. Um, stress, stress, sleep deprivation, all of these things will elevate blood sugar and people don't recognize it, but it's true, especially we're still in COVID. I mean, how much weight gain have you seen with your community just strictly related to stress and sleep deprivation? It's crazy. Um, so insulin is a good hormone, but when it is required by your body to control your blood sugar, more often than not, uh, you can develop insulin resistance, which means your body becomes resistant to the effects of insulin. So more of the hormone is needed to get the same result really quick. One other thing that causes insulin resistance or contributes to it are mini meals. So I know you're a fan of intermittent fasting. I am too. Every time you eat, you're going to stimulate that release of insulin. So when people come, come to me and they're like, I'm having five to six meals a day, um, that's kind of a red flag for, wow, maybe we should consider reducing the amount of times that you eat in a day, optimizing your nutrition per meal. Um, that can be a really great place to start. So again, when you stimulate ins insulin, Let's talk about, I really like the craft test. Like if anyone wants to Google it, Google craft test. This is really interesting. Is this so a K or a C? It's a K-R-A-F-T. Okay. K-R-A-F-T test. And it's kind of like an oral glucose tolerance test, which is where you drink 75 grams of glucose. And then they test your blood sugar. Um, I think like a half hour, one, two, and three hours. Mm -hmm. And what you should see is you should see your blood sugar spike with that glucose load and then come back down. And even in someone who has, so let's say we're normal. We want to talk about someone who's normal, your blood sugar spikes, and it comes back down. And then the blood insulin in this craft test, they'll also test your blood insulin and they see what insulin is doing in the background. So for normal people, they should see a similar curve between blood sugar and insulin. In someone who has kind of pre-pre-diabetes, what you'll see is a normal blood sugar curve, but an elevated insulin curve. So they're requiring more insulin to maintain quote unquote normal blood sugars. Now, someone who has pre-diabetes, their blood sugars won't quite come all the way down in an appropriate amount of time, and they have an elevated insulin response. 
And in someone with diabetes, their blood sugars really have a hard time coming down after that glucose load and they have an elevated insulin response. So we focus so much on glucose, 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 because it's easier to test than insulin. We've been testing it for a longer amount of time. We have more clear cutoffs, but really in the background, what we should be paying attention to is insulin. It can actually predict type two diabetes up to two decades before fasting glucose. It's that powerful. Oh, interesting. So could that then be linked to uh, genes or your family? It could be. So there's, there's, there are some studies, especially when it comes to obesity and genetics and insulin resistance and genetics and research has shown that a mother with higher insulin levels will pass that along to her baby. And that's why we see more and more childhood obesity, at least one of the reasons there's, it's very multifactorial condition, yeah. but, um, insulin again, is your primary fat creation and storage hormone. So the higher amount of insulin you kind of inherit, you might struggle with your body composition or your weight a little bit more than someone who had, um, parents who didn't struggle with their weight. So there is a genetic component but lifestyle matters more. You can really, um, it does take more effort. You know, if, if, if you're not, uh, dealt a good hand of cards with your genes, you're going to have to play them. Right. So yes, genes do matter, but your lifestyle matters more. So, um, what is the connection between, and I just thought of that insulin and cortisol. Oh, it's an interesting one. So cortisol is your stress hormone. Again, cortisol is a good hormone. And um, in our current environment, we are loaded with probably too much cortisol too often. So let's kind of back up before we had technology and email and TVs and phones and all of these things, the major stressors, you know, were to fight or flee. Cortisol is your, your hormone that's made, that's made for you to fight or flee. It's like, when you check your email, you know, and you get that rush of adrenaline, like the subject, the subject line is we need to talk and you get that, <laughs> you get that rush of adrenaline. That's cortisol. That's that feeling of tightness in your chest. Your muscles might tense up. And what's happening there is cortisol causes blood sugar to be released into your bloodstream. It causes your blood sugar to go up because your body physiologically thinks you have to fight or flee which requires energy. And so it makes the energy readily available for your muscles to utilize. Mm -hmm. However, if we're not getting up and moving our bodies, working, working off that stress again, you need insulin. So higher blood sugars, if you're not moving will equate to higher insulin levels. And so that's why over time, chronically elevated cortisol from, from things like chronic stress from work, sleep deprivation is a stress on your body, um, excessive blue light, which is a really interesting area of research from devices like your phone, computer, television, all of those things will increase your cortisol. And in the long term, increase your blood sugar and insulin if you're not um, taking proactive measures against that. And so these are all markers for why some women have really a hard time to lose weight, I guess. Well, sure. I mean, I think a lot of women don't, I think that they don't um, recognize how many areas of their life contribute to weight. Um, and they think it's all about food and exercise because maybe that's what their doctor is telling them. You need to eat less and exercise more. How many times have we heard that? but they might not equate the desk job that is really stressful for them where they're sitting for eight hours a day, staring at a screen that's full of blue light, which it, by the way, blue light, there's receptors in your eyes, stimulates cortisol and suppresses melatonin. That's why it's really important at night that we're wearing blue light blocking glasses because cortisol and melatonin work like on a teeter totter in opposition to each other. So if you're elevating your cortisol with all this blue light, you're not even giving your melatonin a chance to come up. And then your doctor might say, Oh, take a melatonin supplement. Well, how about you just block the blue light and then your body can make your own melatonin. 
try that first. But these little things, people just don't understand, you know, their environmental toxins, plastics, what's in your personal care products, all of those things will contribute to your weight. Not just what you eat is very important. How we move is very important, but it's certainly not the whole story. And sometimes people simply for, they don't want to start there. Maybe they can't start there. Maybe that's not an easy place for them to change right now. And so I always like to kind of combine my weight loss approach with what's the science and what's practical. Like, how are, how are we going to actually get this done? Because you can read any, any book on insulin resistance and think, oh my gosh, I have to have a lifestyle overhaul and this is overwhelming. And it's like, that's completely counterproductive internal dialogue here. And then you st- stresses you out, which raises your cortisol, which then changes your insulin. And then you can't sleep. And then you're on the phone scrolling all night. It's going down the rabbit hole of not what we want. Absolutely. And that's, you know, when you guys see the video or when you, my listeners have seen some of the videos, I always, or now I have started always wearing my glasses and they have a purple tint. And so I have a blue light blocker in my glasses built in. At first I thought, why do I need this? And I thought, you know, that's a great idea. It's a simple solution that cost me a couple extra dollars, but at least it keeps that blue light effect at bay. Right. And I don't wear mine during interviews because my lights reflect so badly off of them. And, um, but I do turn my blue light down. And that's another little hack that a lot of people can do on all of their devices all the time. Turn the blue light down in your screen settings is a really simple hack. So if you don't know where that is, Google it. Right. We're talking about insulin resistance here. Now, Morgan, what are the symptoms of insulin resistance? How can you, can you say, even without a doctor, I know this, I got it. Yes, 100%. So again, 88% of adults have insulin resistance. Um, This quiz that I'm going to give the listeners comes from Dr. Ben Bickman's book, Why We Get Sick. I believe that that book and the obesity code by Dr. Jason Fung, um, or you could do the diabetes code by Dr. Jason Fung. There's a lot of overlap in his diabetes code and obesity code books. Those are the two best books, in my opinion, on the topic. Mm -hmm. So this quiz comes from Dr. Bickman's book. And if you answer yes to one, then you likely have insulin resistance. If you answer yes to two, then you most certainly have insulin resistance. And as I said, if you already have prediabetes, which is blood sugar above 100, so 100 to 126 fasting, excuse me, 125, and then, or type two diabetes, which is a fasting blood glucose of 126 or higher on two separate occasions, you do have insulin resistance. All right. So here's the question. Number one, do you have more fat around your belly than you'd like? Okay. Number two, do you have high blood pressure? So an ideal blood pressure is less than 120 over 80. Do you have a family history of heart disease? You asked about genetics. Genetics do play a role here. Do you have a family history of heart disease? Do you have high levels of blood triglycerides? Do you retain water easily? Do you have patches of darker colored skin or little bumps or skin tags on your neck, armpits, or other areas? Do you have a family member with insulin resistance or type two diabetes? And then for women, do you have polycystic ovarian syndrome or for men, do you have erectile dysfunction? So again, if you answered yes to to one, then you likely have insulin resistance to two, then you most certainly have. And it's not a, not a cutoff, you know, there's, it's a spectrum just like everything else. Mm -hmm. So I'm being very proactive with my lifestyle because I have a direct relative who does have type two diabetes, you know? So another thing that you can look at is metabolic syndrome criteria, which gives a little bit different bend to it. But I do believe that it's important to know your numbers. And these are the numbers that I would really focus on getting into optimal levels to reduce your risk for disease. The first is central obesity. So we've all seen those BMI charts. Those aren't actually very helpful. 
um, in most cases. So what, <laughs> what is more helpful is your central obesity, because that's going to give you a better indicator of your visceral fat mass, which is the visceral fat is underneath your muscle layer. So, you know, if, if people want to do this with us, if you grab your belly fat, that's all subcutaneous fat. That is where your fat is supposed to be stored. I know that we don't like it, but it's actually okay and healthy. And, um, we have to stop, stop obsessing over getting rid of all of our fat. Cause it does serve a purpose. Um, so central obesity for men would be uh, 40 inches or greater of a waist circumference for women. It's 35 or greater. And then there's different you know, organizations that give their own criteria for metabolic, uh, metabolic syndrome. Um, but for the one that I looked at, it's, you have to have that. So central obesity plus two of the four following criteria. So high blood sugar, which is over 100 fasting high triglycerides, which is a 150 or greater, uh, low HDL, which is high density lipoprotein, for men, that would be under 40 would be considered low. Mm -hmm. And then for women, it's considered low if we have under 50 and then high blood pressure. So over 130 uh, for your top number, your systolic or over 85 for your bottom number or your diastolic. And mm -hmm. it is so crazy once you learn about this stuff and really start taking it seriously. I mean, we all probably have some sort of risk factor, even if it's hereditary. So I think it's pretty empowering to know your numbers. And I think it can kind of be a little spark, uh, pun intended on your podcast, a spark to make some lifestyle changes. And also what you just said is somebody listening may say, I have no clue what she says with the numbers, but you know what? The next time you go to your doctor, get your little cheat sheet out with what we're talking about in this episode and ask your doctor after the last blood test, where are those numbers that I heard about? Yep. You know, we're not saying that we know it all, but we just want to give you guidance and saying, you know, go there and be educated about your own health. When you go to the doctor, don't take, don't take their word for everything they're saying and don't do everything they're saying right away. With, of course, you know, if we're not doctors here, but question things, you know, before you get, put on a medication, question, get the numbers, have, you know, an educated um, decision about what's happening to your life and your body. And like you said, Morgan, knowing the numbers is half the battle. If you know where you are, uh, you know what's going on. Mm -hmm. I think one thing I wanted to highlight here is LDL, uh, which is low density lipoprotein, and it has been demonized uh, over and over and it needs to stop. So if you noticed on the metabolic syndrome criteria, LDL was not on there. And it's when you're living a lower carb lifestyle, which is what I advocate for, right? Because carbohydrates are are going to spike blood glucose and insulin. So mm -hmm. if we moderate those and we choose healthy sources and we're smart about them, that's really going to help us keep our blood sugar better regulated over time. Um, but when you do that, that's going to require you to probably eat more saturated fat um, and more fatty foods that will raise LDL. And mm -hmm. so some people kind of are afraid of that. And they're like, well, my doctor said my LDL is high and I'm going to have to start a statin. And I think we have to go a level deeper than that. And so Dr. Bickman in his book has a great, he explains this great. And there's two primary kind of categories of LDL. There's pattern A, which is large buoyant LDL. That is healthy. That's actually found to be healthy and protective. And then there's the small dense pattern B LDL, which if we pretend like that's a golf ball on our arterial, on our arteries, kind of banging around in there, that's going to cause some damage inflammation. The large buoyant ones are like a beach ball. It's going to mm -hmm. bounce around. It's not going to do a lot, not going to do a lot of damage. So Dr. Bickman, you can get your um, particles tested for LDL, or you can use this poor man's method, which is taking your triglycerides divided by your HDL. So whatever your triglycerides are, maybe they're 150, maybe your HDL is 50, 
not that hard. I think it's three. So don't pull, don't pull over and do the math now. Listen to the sh- show again and then do it at home, please. <laughs> I'm not good at math and I can learn the numbers. So can you? Um, so if the ratio is under two, then you're likely fine. So you're likely trending towards that pattern A. But if your ratio is over two, then you're trending towards pattern B. And that's when you should take pause and really assess the rest of your numbers because you probably have elevated triglycerides and low HDL and high glucose and high blood pressure and excess visceral belly fat, you know? So I think if your doctor literally just looks at your LDL and says, you have to go, let's talk about a statin. I would maybe look at getting a different doctor to be completely honest. I think that if I were a person in those shoes, I would try my best to advocate on my behalf. Like, can we look at other risk factors before we start a statin? And if your doctor's open to that, fantastic. If not, you might want to look for a different one. And the problem with statins is they actually make insulin resistance worse. So they're going to make your blood sugar worse. And they have been shown to have cognitive side effects and in a lot of people cause muscle fatigue and muscle pain. So they are not one of my favorite meds. Again, I'm not a primary care physician. I don't prescribe them, but I certainly advocate against them. Um, and don't make any medication changes without going by your doctor. So that's one that I wanted to bring up was knowing your numbers. And specifically, if you have elevated LDL, do not be alarmed until you do a little bit more research on what type of pattern you're trending towards a or B. Yeah. And, you know, from my experience, uh, seeing so many clients over 35 years and hearing their stories, I'm always very hesitant to instantly jump to the medication because the clients come in and they say, hi, I know I need to take whatever X, Y, Z. And I'm like, are you sure you really need this? You know, have you done your research or you do? Well, my doctor really said, and I'm like, well, don't just go by that. I know you trust your doctor, which we all should absolutely when I'm not boo-booing any doctor, but have a little distrust as well. You know, I don't want you to go out and Google and be Dr. Google. Dr. Google, <laughs> Dr. Google go to your doctor and say, okay, I Google Dr. Google and I have all the answers, but be questioning more. Yeah. Yep. You know, be, don't be so trusting. And I can only use my mom as an example. When she goes to the doctor, first off, she doesn't remember what the doctor tells her. And she does everything her doctor says that we ended up having my brother there with her. My mom is not that old to question the doctor. Is that necessary? You know, based on like you said earlier, you got to be careful when you take other medications that this is affecting your body in different ways or that it may be toxic if you take this medication, which sometimes they don't even look at what else you take. So Yeah. And another issue that I see a lot is specialists. So the primary care doctor, if you have diabetes, oh, now you have to go see an endocrinologist. Oh, Mm -hmm. you have heart disease. Now you have to go see a cardiologist. And so different doctors are prescribing different medications. Sometimes there's not the best communication. I can tell you in geriatric PT, one of the number one reasons for re-hospitalizations or hospitalizations at all are adverse medication effects. So people who have diabetes, who, you know, maybe they're trying to get healthy and lose weight and they end up being over-medicated and then they have hypoglycemia because their medication is shooting them uh, too far down. So it really is important to work on getting healthy, especially if you're on medications in agreement and collaboration with your physician, it's important to be proactive, whatever medications you're taking to know the side effects of those medications and know how they interact with each other. But dang it, let, what is that quote? You know, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. You know, (laughs) medicine can either save you or kill you or food, you know, it can either save you or kill you. So there you have it. Now, since our audience is not at that age group just yet, we're a little before around, uh, around and past menopause. So how do declining levels of estrogen, uh, and age in general, increase insulin resistance? Well, good question. There is actually pretty multifactorial. Um, estrogen is protective against insulin resistance. So in the years leading up to and after menopause, women will certainly see a decline in their estrogen, which will 
raise insulin, which will, which causes that body fat redistribution and actually a gain in body fat. So a lot of women might see more belly fat or more visceral fat after menopause than before menopause. And that's the role, one of the roles of insulin. So another thing is that menopause can really mess up sleep. I'm sure that you've heard of this a lot in mood. So maybe they're having some mood, um, mood changes. that's causing relational stress. Okay. That can be, that can raise cortisol over time that can contribute to insulin resistance and then hot flashes, waking them up at night. So they're not getting restful sleep. That's a chronic stress going to raise cortisol, going to raise insulin resistance. Sleep is so darn important. You know, when you're sleeping, that's when you repair your body. That's when you, that's when you're actually kind of growing that muscle tissue, you get the spikes in testosterone and human growth hormone. And that's where we're maintaining and building muscle. So we think that the, the beauty happens in the gym, but actually it happens in the rest period, you know, in the gym, you're kind of breaking it down, <laughs> but you have to rest to build it up. So when we're going through perimenopause and menopause and your sleep is off, that is going to lower the amounts of those great hormones that preserve lean muscle mass. And estrogen is also, um, kind of protective against bone health and muscle mass. So we have to work extra hard at optimizing our protein intake and our strength training for healthy bones and muscles after menopause. And the other reason there's a benefit to that is I should have brought my muscle model over here. I have a fat and muscle model and, um, muscle is a great deposit for glucose in the form of muscle glycogen. So that's why athletes can eat all that food and not really gain weight. They have so much muscle. They can handle a high amount of carbohydrates and not require as much insulin because they have kind of a garage to put it in. Think of your muscle as your garage. So the more muscle you have, the more insulin receptors you have, and the less insulin overall, you're going to need to kind of help, um, move the glucose from the bloodstream into the, into the muscle. So anywho, the, the more muscle mass you have, the higher metabolism, the better insulin sensitivity, and the less insulin resistance. So protein resistance, training, sleep, gotta be a focus. Morgan, I love this. I love this. I'm just like nodding. I'm going, yes, amen. Okay, high five to Morgan. <laughs> yeah. Because I know, I mean, I'm past menopause, but I still get, um, my husband always says, oh, you, if you were still getting your period, you would be getting your period right now because I do get hot flashes occasionally. I do have a, my stomach starts bloating up like there's no tomorrow and all the side effects that you only get a perimenopause and they still come in a much milder form, but they never go away. And so that all comes into waves throughout our bodies. But, you know, we've all, and I'm sure you have talked about sleep. And I find that, yes, sleep is important. And I understand that so many women are so friggin' frustrated because it is so hard to figure out how do you sleep well? How do you get the best night's sleep? One person says, oh, 69 degrees uh, in the bedroom. I'm like, I'm freezing to death. I'm naturally more cold. This is not working for me. Or, you know, turn off all the lights. Yes, I'm going for that too, but I don't like to sleep in the dark. It doesn't feel good. So it's, it's really a hit and miss to really figure out and hone in on that sleeping. But, um, and I understand the frustration that many women have to go about it. But I, I again, like Morgan's just said, don't give up on it. Sleep is where it's at. Mm -hmm. It and is then, where all the magic happens. Yep. Now we talked a little bit about diet, a little bit about exercise. So let's talk about a little bit more about the food side. So is, are there specific foods or diets or a protocol that people should um, look into when it comes to insulin resistance? Yeah. So I think that what's helpful when we're talking about diet, I like breaking it down into macronutrients um, because a calorie is kind of an arbitrary number and your cells don't have calorie receptors. You don't go and get your blood tested for calories. You know, I think that it makes us feel like you're in control. It's just not that helpful points and calories. Macros are helpful because we know physiologically that every single one of your cell is actually surrounded in a layer of fat. 
and protein. So there are essential fatty acids and essential amino acids. There are no essential carbohydrates. So is there a certain dietary approach? I think that the lower carb lifestyle is truly the way that we were meant to live. I'm not anti-carb. I eat everything. I consider no food off limits, but I do think that we have to create boundaries around unhealthy food and be sure that we're enjoying it intentionally instead of emotionally. So macronutrients, what's the big picture? There's three main ones, carbohydrates. So we have starches, sugars, and fibers under the carbohydrate umbrella. And really starch is just a kind of sugar. I'm not going to get kind of more into the weeds there. And then there's protein and then there's fat and there are healthy and unhealthy types of dietary fat. But I wanted to start with the carbohydrates and just kind of highlight a couple of nuances here. You know, fiber is actually protective against your blood sugar and insulin response. That's why like, let's say a food product has 20 grams of total carbs, five grams of fiber. If you track your net carbs, that's 15. The fiber doesn't really count. Um, added sugar is going to be worse for you than starchy foods. So if you're going to have like a candy bar that has 20 grams of added sugar, um, that's going to be more unhealthy than say 20 grams of pasta because added sugar is 50% fructose, which is the simple sugar, 50% glucose. Now glucose can be used by any cell in your body for energy. Fructose is metabolized almost exclusively in the liver. And so when we kind of give ourselves a big shot of fructose, that's like a missile going straight to your liver. And it has no choice, but to kind of quickly, um, develop liver fat. Essentially, if you're having a lot of added sugar, that's why non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is a rising concern in our country because we're having more added sugar in our diet. Um, you know, so, so we got to kind of think about that. Am I going to have the candy bar? Am I going to have the, the bread or the pasta, the bread or the pasta is going to still spike your blood, blood sugar, but it's not going to be as bad for you as the added sugar. So lower carbohydrates is better. Dr. Bickman gives some recommendations in his book and they are pretty ketogenic recommendations. So if you answered yes to two or more of those questions, um, you know, he really recommends a ketogenic approach for me personally. If I had to, I would, but I like my carbohydrates, even if they're in like fruit, you know, the, the lower glycemic berries, uh, maybe half a banana, like stuff like that. I like my fruit. I don't want to live a ketogenic lifestyle, so I don't really teach it, but I see the metabolic benefits of it. Um, I just like the more lower glycemic approach. So protein is really important. And probably the most, um, underappreciated macronutrient when we're talking about protein, there are a lot of different functions. It maintains our, our hair, our nails, most importantly, our bones and our muscles. And there's something called a leucine threshold, um, or, or an anabolic trigger. I've heard it termed and leucine is one of the amino acids that's primarily responsible for laying down new muscle tissue. And you need at least three grams, preferably close to four, but at least three and per meal to really stimulate muscle growth. That's why you see a lot of um, recommendations online for getting at least 30 grams of high quality protein, which is a complete protein per meal. Cause that's about the point where you're getting those three grams of leucine. So big protein recommendation there. If you want to know how much to have in a day, I recommend 1.5 grams per kilogram of body weight. That's a good estimation. Um, another good one that's a little easier is one gram per pound of ideal body weight. So that one's a little bit on the higher end, but it's okay too. So you want to really space the protein out in your meals, you, a bowl of special K with like 10 grams of protein. It's just not going to trigger any muscle growth whatsoever. So if you're going to focus somewhere, I recommend focusing on protein because it's actually going to do you some good when it comes to muscle and satiety, right? Like, oh my goodness. A lot of my clients say they have a lot fewer sugar cravings when they're prioritizing their protein. Yeah. Fat is the next one. So dietary fat, the healthy ones would be the monounsaturated fats. Those are omega nines. 
Um, I believe olive oil, avocados, those are pretty high in um, like olives and avocados, pretty high in omega-9, also nuts and seeds. But then here's the tricky part. So we hear unsaturated fats, right? Those are good for us. Well, not so much because as it turns out, some unsaturated fats are good, some aren't. So those omega-9 are a type of unsaturated. There's also omega-3 and omega-6. And omega-3, especially in the form of like fatty fish, like salmon, tuna, those are great. Those are really anti-inflammatory. Um, other omega-3s from plant sources, um, like flaxseed and walnuts, chia seeds, those are good too, but there's a, they're a different kind. It's ALA. And so there's a little bit different EPA and DHA are the anti-inflammatory omega-3s. I'm getting kind of in the weeds, but anywho, there's like an eight to 15% conversion rate between the ALA and the EPA and DHA. So if you're eating omega-3s for anti-inflammatory benefits, get them from the fish, you know, get them from the green algae, not from the nuts and seeds. And then um, omega-6 fatty acids that are whole food. So nuts and seeds primarily, those are fine. The problem is in these processed omega-6 oils. So canola oil, soybean oil, corn oil, vegetable oil, those are, and those are actually inflammatory and we really want to limit those in our diet. So you can't just say all unsaturated fats are healthy because they're not. Um, in my opinion, saturated fat is neutral at worst beneficial at best. I have seen research that kind of demonizes saturated fat. I've also seen research that really, um, advocates for it. I love food that's high in saturated fat. So like butter, um, whole fat, Greek yogurt, whole fat, milk, animal products. We do a lot of that in our house and it actually raises HDL. So, you know, how way back in the beginning, we were talking about uh, metabolic syndrome and how low HDL was an issue. Well, turns out if you eat saturated fat, that can help with your HDL but it's also going to raise your LDL. And that's why I wanted to give you that caveat at the beginning where it may not be an issue. If you have elevated LDL, you have to dig further. Um, and then the other types of fat that I really recommend avoiding are trans fats and um, that are not found naturally in food products. They were actually banned. I don't know if you knew that they were banned by the FDA, I think in 2018, no. there. yeah. So a lot of food products are having to be remanufactured to have fully hydrogenated oils instead of partially hydrogenated oils. It's interesting. So when it comes to food, you know, the basics are eat, eat whole food. Uh, if it grows in the earth or has eyes, you're probably fine. Um, and then try to really limit the processed and refined starches and sugars and in general, you know, sugars. And even if they're whole, like a ton of fruit, uh, a ton of starchy vegetables, those are still going to raise your glucose and insulin probably more than you're going to want it. If you already have metabolic problems, if you're relatively young, high muscle mass, your sleep and your stress is all dialed in, you're moving your body, you're going to tolerate more carbohydrates. Okay. So we have to really kind of change our dietary approach as we age. And we want to focus on that lean muscle and low insulin. And um, so prioritize protein, at least 30 grams of high quality protein per meal eat some healthy fat with every meal. If you can tolerate fiber, eat some fiber with every meal. Um, from a dietary approach, I like two or three meals a day, depending on weight loss goals and what people like for fasting. I don't know. What do you, what do you do for fasting? I kind of fluctuate between two to three meals a day. I usually have two meals a day for myself and that works well with my exercise schedule because I exercise in a fasted state and and also uh, clues me into my social life. So that is, I work with that. I've tried some longer period diets of like a, a full day fast or a dry fast. And I feel that an intermittent fasting approach, whether wherever you move the hours around, at least we get at least a minimum of 12 hours of not eating as a minimum. And then go with your lifestyle because, you know, as, as, as we get older, like you said, we need to change how we eat and, and our gut digests things a little differently. And uh, we have menopause that we're dealing with. So these are super amazing, important points. And I'm so glad that Morgan is talking about that protein 
feed lean protein with every meal. If you have listened to any of my podcasts, people, then you know I <laughs> preach this all the time. So eat your protein and your healthy fats. And um, such an important message. Now, let's dive a little bit into exercise. So if you have insulin resistance, are you going to go out and bang out heavy weights to combat this? Or go, do you go for a marathon? What, do you, would you, what would you recommend? Okay. So first of all, we have to prioritize resistance training. You will not get bulky. If you're a woman listening to this, my mom says this all the time. I don't want to get bulky, Morgan. You're not, you don't have high testosterone. It's not going to happen. You're going to get lean. You're going to get strong. You're going to reduce your joint pain and you're going to increase your muscle mass. You'll probably have better weight maintenance, slower weight loss, right? Because muscle is going to weigh more than fat, but your clothes are going to fit better. So what I recommend from a, from a muscle and bone health standpoint, the research is really suggesting three times a week. So at a minimum twice, but preferably three times a week of resistance training of all major muscle groups to fatigue. And that's important because if you're just, you know, kind of doing some, some nice little, nice little moves, you're moving your body, but you're not getting to fatigue that's not strength training. That's building muscular endurance. But if you want to reduce insulin resistance, focusing on strength training is the best bang for your time. Um, I like to aim for eight to 12 repetitions to fatigue. So that's a moderate, that's a, a moderate to high intensity. Mm -hmm. Um, and then Dr. Bickman says, never miss a leg day. So if you only, if you have to prioritize, do your big muscles of your legs, you know, your glutes, your hamstrings, your quads, because you're going to get more bang for your buck again. Um, so resistance training is important. I think that walking is really underrated, especially walking at an incline. Um, research has shown that I'm, you know, geriatric PT. So this is my bend, but to prevent hip fractures that can walking at an incline or hiking is really good for your, um, your femoral neck to prevent hip fractures. And I think it's relaxing. I think that walking is a great way to reduce stress, lower cortisol, utilize what blood glucose is available. Uh, high intensity interval training is awesome too. That's really been shown to kind of boost those anabolic hormones, like human growth hormone, um, that we were talking about earlier. So my workouts look way different than they used to. I have, like I said, two young kids and I work out several times a week. I like exercise. It is a priority to me. It's a non-negotiable, but sometimes, you know, some days it's just 10 minutes of strength training at home, doing pushups you know, taking my one and a half year old daughter and doing squats and lifting her over my head. Um, I used to run a lot of half marathons. I really actually enjoy running, but I just don't make the time for it anymore because I do prioritize, um, my strength training. Cause I know that it's better for me. And after two kids, I weigh about a little over 10 pounds less than what I did in high school with a better body composition, working out less. So when, when you really dial in your diet and focus on strength training, it helps so much with your body composition. Yeah, it sure does. Now, Morgan, what are the four pillars of living a low insulin lifestyle? And you said why mindset is the foundation of them all. Yeah. Well, I'm actually going to kind of maybe add a fifth in here. So we've talked about a lot of them. I like that we've got to cover a lot of bases. Um, the first pillar is what you eat, you know, what you eat and when you eat. So nutrition, intermittent fasting, and then you have exercise or movement, regular movement throughout the day, especially if you can go for a quick walk after you eat, that's going to help with your blood sugar regulation, stress and sleep. Those are the four pillars. I'm going to kind of lump in your environment and your toxins as another one. That's kind of a newer area of research, but for example, the blue light toxicity that we covered, um, aluminum, um, I can't remember glyphosate. I think it is different toxins in the environment can, um, cause cellular inflammation and contribute to insulin resistance too. And then it's all on the foundation of mindset, because I think if you don't have the right mindset going into trying to live this low insulin lifestyle, you're going to 
revert into your old habits. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to get overwhelmed and it's, you might kind of beat yourself up. I mean, how often are you coaching someone and they have a negative mindset that they want positive outcomes? And it's like, if you want positive outcomes, you need to work on having a positive mindset or it's helpful to work on having a positive mindset. I'm trying to get that need word out of my vocabulary because as one of my podcast guests said, it's a stress word, Morgan. <laughs> need, want, should, have to, something like that. She said, should, yeah, should is the one that I'm like, should, yeah. Um, so mindset is important. We, we, it's helpful to get out of the all or nothing mindset. It's really helpful to kind of stop obsessing over the scale, you know, and really anchor your decisions and your why, like, why do you want to get healthy? Who are you getting healthy for? How is your life going to look different when you're healthy? How is your life going to look different because you're staying healthy? How is your loved one's lives going to look different because of your good health? You know, I see this firsthand because I have little kids. My mom and mother-in-law are so stinking helpful and they couldn't be as helpful as they are if they were in poor health. You know, that's the hard truth. And I have seen 60 year olds who act like 80 year olds and 80 year olds who act like 60 year olds. Um, and I want to be the latter. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I want to be old, but young and I want to be mobile and I want to have so much fun with my kids and grandkids and enjoy my retirement. That's kind of where that mindset piece comes in. You know, it's so much more than just weight loss. It's really about living your best healthy lifestyle and living life to the fullest. That's what it's all about. Yeah. And it it can be done. And I mean, all the messages that we're so, especially right now, we're, as we're recording this, we're around Christmas time, we're bombarded with the new you for the new year is just one of them, which always just makes me cringe. And I'm like, your old, old you is just as good. It doesn't need to be better. If you want to change things around your lifestyle, then start what I call baby steps. And and, you know, like you said, Morgan, a positive mindset is really the way to go. And it doesn't matter if you have a couple of pounds more and if you can pinch an inch on your waist, you know, if your butt's a little flabby, it's okay. We're not here on Instagram looking like the Instagram super chicks. Right. They Photoshop. Did you know they have, I'm going to say butt inserts. I saw this like little behind the scenes. If you want a perky butt you just get a little insert and you put it in your leggings and then your butt looks perky. It's like you have, that's a stress. Social media is an active stress for a lot of people. So I really actively try to stay off of social media as much as I can. Take a little break, but speaking Uh of social media, how can people reach you Morgan? Yeah. So the, I'm most active actually on YouTube. I really like producing educational content. I have a podcast, Reshape Your Health with Dr. Morgan Nolte, or they can just search for Dr. Morgan Nolte on YouTube and find me there. I'm also a little active on Instagram at Dr. Morgan Nolte um, and Facebook. And my website is zivli.com, Z-I-V-L-I.com. Kind of a fun story. Um, When I was looking to rebrand, I was like, well, everything is taken. Thousands of names were taken. So I went to different languages. It turns out Ziv means live in Croatian, evidently. And then L-I stands for low insulin. So live low insulin. Kind of interesting. Oh, interesting. I thought about that. Thanks for bringing that up because it's like, what is this interesting? (laughs) What does that made up word mean? Live low insulin. I think it's a really simple litmus test to help you decide if something's healthy or not. So yeah, and then uh, they can book a free call if they want. I have a free masterclass on my website. There's a ton of great resources on there. Great. So with that, I want to thank you so much for sharing such an incredible knowledge on insulin resistance and bringing a, shedding a light on some of the questions that I got and that people had no answers and sure I didn't. That's why I invited you on the show. So thank you so much for being here. Yes, of course. Thanks, Heka. Thanks for having me. And I want to invite all the listeners to not just listen to the episode, get your notebook out and write down your numbers. No, no, no. We want that too. But we actually want you to reach out to us on social media. And I say this after every episode, we want to hear from you. And I mean it. Mm -hmm. I want you to ask us questions. 
the show will be posted everywhere on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn. You will find us everywhere. So there's no excuse for you not to reach out to us. And all the links that Morgan mentioned are will be in the show notes. So you can easily reach out to her and book that call or whatever it is you do. But tell us, how did this episode impact you? What more questions do you have? Do you have somebody that would benefit from this episode? Share it with them because that will help us spread the message of health even more. So with that, my friends, we're out of here and we'll see you next time on the Pursue Your Spark podcast. Ciao. Thanks. Thanks.